Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1256, with guest Lily Dart. Recorded Friday, January 15th, 2016. And it's another great show from London, or somewhere west of London, or east of London. I think east of London. Yeah, we east. are east of London. We have a real Londoner with us today, yeah. So who is appalled at how far she right. had to come to come here. So. We'll be talking to Lily in just a few minutes, but uh, this is another one in our series of shows that we, we were doing from NDC London. NDC stands for NDC. Nice. <laughs> and uh, not... Because when Nor- they do it in Oslo, then it's the Norwegian Developers Conference. Right. But here's, in London, here's it's just NDC. NDC. Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, it's been a good day. I mean, absolutely. Second to last show that we're recording here. So yep. we're a little, we might we get a little release them in order. You know, that's mm-hmm. how that works. But we might get a little silly. I'm and uh, it's, this is supposed to be coming out on February 11th, which is my anniversary. Wow. Yeah, 21 years. Congratulations. Thank you. To her. Yeah. But not with you. She put up with me Jeez. anyway. I love you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Better know framework time. I got something for you. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? So I've been looking at things that are trending in the social media and the internets, and this is one. It's it's actually an Amazon tool. It's a free tool for drawing and visualizing your AWS cloud architecture components. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's called CloudCraft, and it's at cloudcraft.co. Oh, okay. .co. Co. So some of these architecture components uh, include EC2 nodes, uh, auto-scaling groups, availability zones, elastic load balancers, um, S3 and CloudFront storage, SQS and Route 53 services, um, RDS and DynamoDB databases, and there's much, much more. So, and it's free. So and when I say free, I mean free. I, I went looking. I couldn't find a pricing thing anywhere on this one. I'm pr- Wait a minute. Oh, hold on. Yes, completely free. Yeah, there entirely. is a pricing, but it says CloudCraft is entirely free to use. You can use it to create professional AWS visualizations and diagram for any use in both commercial and non-commercial projects. It makes good-looking pictures, actually. The, the diagram there is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah I like visualizations. S- well, and this is, you know, one of the problems you, when you go onto the console for, and whether it's AWS or it's Azure or any of these things, you just have that huge list of stuff. Yeah. You gotta, You're like, what is all this stuff? It really helps to have a visual image of how hey, it all works together. You really want to sort of have a hierarchical relationship that this is part of this group and that is part of that group, right. but at least these diagrams help. Pretty cool. fine, man. Yeah, nice. Who's talking to us, brother? Uh, I grabbed a comment off of show 1120, which we did back in April of 2015. We talked to Danielle Cooley about y- user experience 
in general. It was really a, a kind of a fun show. Mm. Garnered a lot of comments, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, love this comment from Mikhail Setcher, who said, Great show. You actually get more attention in app and web design. <laughs> However, I have to say that I disagree about the comment on the hamburger menu. Oh, yeah, I yeah. remember Danielle was not keen on the hamburger menus. Oh, that's, that's right. Yes, I remember her. Yeah. Yeah, the three-line... You well, know. sure. I remember the hamburger thing, and I, yeah. and we've had discussions about it. And there's, she's not the only one who doesn't think that's very intuitive. I think, I think design people don't like it all that much, but it's be, I, it's almost become part of the lexicon now. People know. Yeah. If you see, the, if you don't know what to do, you should go there. Hmm. Uh, and that's basically what Mikhail says. He says. While studies may say that people don't know what it is now, it has quickly become the standard all over. And the fact is that the first time a user is presented with it, it might not be that intuitive, but once they have found out what the button does, they will remember that this is where to find the menu. Right. So it has sort of become part of the gestalt. Yeah. And since it is becoming more and more common, chances are very slim that first-time users see the button is in your app. They've probably seen it somewhere else first. Yeah. Google's doing it everywhere. Microsoft's adopted in the Windows 10 design guidelines as well. Mm. I believe it is more confusing not to use the hamburger menu, hmm. since part of good UX is consistency and putting things where users expect them to yeah. be. And now you might be actually breaking expectations if you don't use I it. I think that's exactly the point. And, and admittedly, this is... Mikhail wrote this eight months ago, because hmm. let's face it, we're kind of in a fast-moving time with all these yeah, things, kinda. right? So I'm kind of with you uh, on all this. While few of my non-technical friends know what I'm talking about when I say hamburger menu, they do know that the button with the three lines on it is the menu button. Right. They might not call it a hamburger. Yeah, we only know that because, you know, we're in the business, yeah. right? The button is a solution to a problem. And while it may not be the best one, it is what most people are used to by now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's all I got to say about that, right? Yeah, okay. I can't argue with Michael. I, I, we'll have to ask Lily about it, too. She's mm-hmm. the researcher here. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show, Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We like to... I don't know. Collect them. (laughs) (laughs) We put them up on the wall. Put them up on the wall and throw darts at them. Nice. Uh, Let's talk to Lily Dart now. Lily is a freelance user experience designer and user researcher focused on helping clients and delivery teams build brilliant products by better understanding their users. She combines technical knowledge with user-focused design to help organizations solve difficult problems and deliver more for their users. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. It's yeah. Really awesome to be here. Well, it's really awesome to have you. Yeah, super and to have you here. Um, you just did a talk. I did just do a talk. Yes, I did a talk called No Excuses User Research. And that was about showing people that user research doesn't have to be really super hard or difficult. You can just get on with it with some simple methodologies and start to get feedback from your users. Yeah, would you say you would want to test out some things on users before you go live? Or you just say, you know... As, as you use our website, let's say, or our app, we want to just take some measurements and see what you're doing. Well, so in an ideal world, you would do a lot of upfront, not a lot of, some upfront research to understand and define what your user needs are. Mm. From that, you'd then build an initial bit of product, and then you've got something to either take out to people for usability testing or to put live and start getting those kinds of metrics back on. Um, in reality, what happens a lot of the time is that people just go ahead and build some stuff, and then they build some more stuff, mm. and then they build some more stuff, and then they build some more stuff, yeah. and then eventually they go, oh, no one's using our thing. Why isn't anyone <laughs> using our thing? Um, I love it. 
love it. And then that's usually where I get involved. <laughs> the technical they never term, call you when things are going well. No, absolutely. Absolutely they don't. Stuff um, and things. Stuff and things, yeah. yeah. So when their stuff and things start to go wrong um, or continue to not work, as is more likely the case, uh, that it tends to be when I get called in. So the methods I was talking about were more based for if you've already, if you're in that situation, if you have an app or a product or a service that is running and has been running for a while yeah. and actually you're kind of going like I'm just guessing every time I build a feature mm-hmm. I just don't really know whether or not this is having any impact um, then they were some kind of um, well I'm hoping that they're gateway drugs yeah. uh, to, to more user research <laughs> to actually knowing what's going on yeah you know, I read a really interesting piece about Evernote the other day yes it was talking about I mean they almost they have been asking their customers and kept on building features for different customers and now they call it the 5% problem yeah. mm. where no more than 5% of their customers are using any given feature. So they have this huge array of features. They don't know which one to focus on because the customer space is so diverse. Yes, yeah. And that, to me, seems like a very challenging problem to deal with as well. Yeah, I think it is. And um, there was a bit that I didn't put in my talk in the end, actually, because I wasn't sure because it wasn't quite so applicable to people who are dealing with um, internal products and things like that, which mm-hmm. was about using Google Analytics and um, some of the audience data that you can get out of that, which is a little bit questionable in the way that it gets gathered, but will give you a decent starting point for actually who's using it mm. and what kind of interests they have. Um, and actually, I had Evernote in mind when I was writing that because oh, yeah. um, you know they intended it for note writing and then suddenly found that people were keeping their cookery collections in it. Yeah. You know? And uh. actually then kind of went well do we need to you know pivot our idea into something else or do we need you know carry on down the route we're going or do we have more features and uh, i think it's a i think it's a dangerous place to be in the five percent problem because you can easily kind of go well let's just keep on developing all of this all at once and and i think that what they're now looking at is just so expensive to move all these things forward together like now you have some kind of underpinning feature come along like a new security constraint and it's hugely expensive to apply to a massive number of features like yeah. Is discoverability still the number one problem? <laughs> uh, yes, actually. I did a project on this recently for a client that I can't name um, that was redesigning all of its websites into a single website and then trying to increase discoverability of its content. Nice. And, um, uh, I wasn't involved in the initial project. I just went and did the usability testing for it, went out and pounded the streets and did some guerrilla user research in cafes. Um, so you literally going up to folks in, in cafes saying, hey, li- try this? Yep. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. By the way, <laughs> but is it effective? It is effective. You get to see the look on their face, and you get to watch them scanning the page and looking for Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, right? yeah. So it is effective. It is. It can be a li- little bit limited by the technology and apps that we have available. Sure. So unless you have uh, a cracked phone, then you can't get reliable software in most cases to actually record the screen and record their face and record the audio at the right, same time. Right, to try and get the capture done well. Absolutely, which is not so much of a problem in the lab because you can have other cameras in other places and mm-hmm. you can work that all out. But, but if you're a, out on the street, shop. then you need to be able to pretty much press the button and, you know, and, and let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, easier on laptops. You're not laptops. trying to put the app on their phone. You're just handing no, them the phone. No, you just hand them the phone. And, right. um, you know, and then and then hope that the software doesn't crash halfway through, which you know sometimes it, it does. It is <laughs> if it was finished software, you wouldn't be doing you know. <laughs> well, quite yeah. Um, <laughs> you have to bribe them with lattes. You'd see so you do you do you incentivize them somehow. Um, yeah. So it ver- it depends on who you're talking to. So usually guerrilla research is done best when you have some sense of the kind of people who are going to be in you're the not location just you're going people to. At ra- random you're not really. Just, well, you're looking at particular demo. You kind of are, but you're, you so you pick a location where you think that. 
demo be. Okay. Hmm. And then you hope for the best when you get there, right. basically. Whoever's going to talk to you. Whoever's going to talk to you, and you probably get a few more participants than you need to, so that if you have someone who's really way off base, then you can kind of go. I mean, I almost wonder if you have the opposite of you just people say no a lot like they're busy um so usually i'm going to them and saying so one of the ways that we incentivize the the businesses to come in and let us do it is mm-hmm. to get something like vouchers from them right so the business we we get advance permission and we say we're going to spend you know a couple of hundred quid on vouchers right um we'll then turn up and go i've got a 20 quid voucher for you for your favorite coffee shop or shop or whatever right. you know, you're standing in front of a starbucks let's okay yeah and with a 20 dollar starbucks with a 20 dollar you know starbucks voucher you obviously and then, liked the place you're yeah. here exactly um yeah. and then that usually is enough to make people go oh actually i do have 10 minutes yeah how surprising yeah um but uh, you do you do occasionally get people who say no um yeah, that's fine but for the most part as long as you've picked location well and you've kind of pick the right incentive so the right value of incentive and you right. find that the the big problems are easily found with just one or two people or do you have to really hammer a whole bunch of people to find the problems that is a good question i think you have to um so usually i try and do a sample size of about eight people mm-hmm. um you can pretty much see all of the things that are going to happen at about six though um mm. jacob nilson says five um but at about six you kind of go right i've seen all of this happen before so the next two sessions are going to be interesting but a little bit more boring than the rest of them right, sure. um so you uh, you do kind of get to the point where you go now that i now i know this is a repeating pattern and that's right. you know and it becomes a little bit less interesting hey rockheads As Richard and I travel the world for the Azure World Tour, we're telling people all about our dev-centric friends at Stackify. They've been awarded PC Magazine Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating, and I quote, The depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshine the other products in this category, end quote. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Mag's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. The only other concern that I would have then is once you've asked somebody to have an opinion, mm. they have to have one. Yeah. <laughs> like how much does that direct, how do you deal with the effect of directly surveying? Uh, you know, does it distort, is there a mechanism for compensating for data distortion? Yes. The um, mechanism is that you don't ask them for their opinion. Nice. <laughs> um, so you try and organize, so it, it's difficult. So for the, the discovery, discoverability project that I was working on, um, it was trickier because actually you didn't really have, usually you will have a specific task or something that you want someone to complete. Right. So usability testing becomes about watching how well they can complete it. Right. I want you to do X and then you just leave them to see if they can find their way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then you might at the end ask them for the for some feedback, but 
you often get, when you ask for feedback, you often get the common things are, it's really nice and clean. I really like the visuals. The photography is really nice. Like you get this kind of set of generic comments right, that you so can you almost ask predict. For feedback, just not do anything with it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, well, so <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you will get something out of it where someone will say something really insightful and kind of go, actually, and you, you'll go, actually, that's a really good insight. Only one person has said it, but it's a really good insight. And yes. it seems to be applicable to the way other users Here's are Here's what you should do. You should write an app that. <laughs> yes, exactly. You get a lot of geniuses that want to expound profoundly. You do. And that. there are some people who, so if you're doing it in a lab and you're recruiting, this is one of the benefits of going out on the street. Um, then you can use a recruitment company, but usually they have a restrictive pool of people that they're going to be talking to. Right, mm. so you get a bias right there. Mm. You get a bias and you get specialist, like specialist research yeah, um, people who are a little too good at trying your app. Exactly, mm. yes. Yeah. And mm. you know, when I had a couple of those in the last round of lab testing that I did, and you could just, t like, you could tell because you do this introduction to kind of go, um, I'm testing the app, not you. Don't feel bad if anything goes wrong. Right. Please be open about your feedback. You know, you do this. And they're just kind of almost finishing your sentences for you. And you yeah. go, I know that you've done this, like, eight times in the yeah. last eight months. Mm. It's it's obvious that you have. Uh. And it doesn't mean that they don't have valuable feedback to give, but it is, you know, you a, a skill. Put them in a particular category. You do, of, you yeah, do. Professional tester said. Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, and you often get that kind of, I'm trying really hard to have an opinion, even yeah. though you've not asked them to. They, mm. they will go out of their way to express something that is right. an opinion. Check off the PITA column, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know that term. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Pan okay. and the avocado. I think that's a really, I mean, I love that we talked about this piece of testing, but I've yeah. got to think there are other ways. Other ways to get feedback, yes, certainly. Um, so the three things that I was talking about in my talk today were, um, so one of them was about transaction audits, mm -hmm. which are those little things that look like surveys that you see okay, usually on help documentation. Right. So the kind of, did you find what you were looking for? Yeah. Um, and sort actually, of slides into view, usually too soon? Uh, no, no, no. So I said no, <laughs> no pop-ups, nothing distracting. Okay. So I'm talking about the, I mean, they are fundamentally asking the same questions, but yes. that, it's bad, bad, bad naughty Make, UX yeah, practice. Yeah. Um, Asking for people's opinions by making them angry, not a good idea. Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, I cited Twitter as an example, yeah. um, the Twitter app. I don't know if you've used it, yeah, um, but sure. every time you dismiss a feature, every single time you dismiss the same feature, it will ask you for your feedback. Yeah. Um, That's a great way to gather hate. Well, exactly. I now, I was saying I now randomly answer yes or no, depending on what, like, yeah. what yeah. mood I'm in, because I'm just so irritated yeah. by it. And add into the comments, I am soiling your data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was wondering, it, I just, it fascinates me to know what they are doing with that data, whether mm. they're actually looking at it and going, oh, it's interesting, but she really liked it on Fridays and didn't seem to like it for the rest of the week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what, what kind of conclusions they're making from that. But, uh, I, I also say, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've run across cases where we've done studies like that and just never done anything with the data. Yes, yeah. This was a question that came up at the end of, um, at the end of my talk, actually, where someone said, we're gathering a lot of data and information mm -hmm. um, but we're not really going through the analysis like we're getting feedback we're not really going taking the time to analyze it trying, and it's definitely not an getting into an app it is mm -hmm. really difficult it, it, well, it can be I mean so the one of the methods so the transaction audit thing you're asking people whether or not they found what they were looking for right. so the, the core of that while you will get hopefully some textual answers if they didn't find what they were looking for so you can ask them for more details if they say they're unhappy mm -hmm. the core of it is going to be yes or no Right. So that gives you an immediate, like, instantaneous red flag if 80% of people are coming back and saying, no, they didn't find what they were looking yeah, for. Yeah, right away, like, this isn't working. Whatever, exactly. However they got here. 
Exactly. Still so, not an actual item, but you know you might have a problem. You know, well, so you're likely to know what page you've got a problem on if you're doing it for content mm -hmm. or if you're doing it for search results, then hopefully you're passing back the search query that goes with it. You know, you'll have a, a sense of where the where your red flag is. Mm -hmm. And it's a good red flag for actually, is there something that we need to look at here? And perhaps you don't look at the comments that people are giving until you have like established that there is actually a serious problem there. Right. Now you say you do most of your, you come in and on the, end of the when they have a problem or after they have a problem but do you also have sort of a list of do's and don'ts for design in general of apps i do i mean i so i my background's in uh front-end development and web design um i transitioned into ux after a while and then that brought me into user research so i still do a lot of ux and uh, quite a lot of strategic design and consultancy um I, uh, it's not always the case that I get bought in right at the end of the journey, but certainly if someone's hiring me just for user research, often it's like we've got a problem and yeah. we need someone to come it's in and help us fix it. Well, not usually preemptive. Exactly. Mm. Um, but there are also plenty of sort of ongoing um, products that I work on that I will be consulting for on a regular basis. Um, but that tends to be more about making sure that the process is good and that we are regularly talking to our users and also that we are making sure that if we have feedback that we've included it and how we analyze it and mentoring people to do their own research. Um, one of my kind of key things with consultancy is that I, I want to be fired after a while because they don't need me anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, I want to get to that point uh, where well, I've taught them enough. Like, as you're describing, it's like you get brought in our project and then they keep bringing you back. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. indeed. Are things going them, well? I want them to learn something, <laughs> ultimately. Uh, yeah. Um, no, so yeah, I, I want them to, a lot of it is mentoring, a lot of it is coaching, and the point is to be able to extract myself after a while and go, so you can now do your own research, or mm -hmm. or I've helped you hire someone full-time for this because you've seen the value of it. also compelling that they know now is the time we need to do a gorilla run, let's yeah. call Lily. Yes, Hey, yes, I'm thinking absolutely. this is there, what I want to evaluate, let's do it that way. Like, yeah. To have an educated customer know what service they want when they want it. They, absolutely. You know, they definitely made progress then. And over time, you kind of get to the point where it's only the really complicated problems that you start to get the call for. Yeah. So, you know, in the early stages, it's kind of, we know we need to talk to users and we don't really know how to do that. Right. And then in the later stages, it tends to be, so we've gone and talked to these users and we've kind of had this feedback, but we don't really know what to do with this and right. what do we do next? Um, and again, that's that's kind of, you know, although it means less work for me, it's great to see that tailing Did off. So that <laughs> but and we always talk, describe it as we, we're talking to users, but isn't the most valuable feedback is more indirect than that. It's watching how users interact with the software. It can be. I think it depends on which stage you are in the process. Mm -hmm. So if you are, if you have something built and working, then it's certainly very valuable to sit and watch people use it and right. see what kind of usability issues you can find from that. But if you're at the point where you want to build something new or you want to build a new feature, then actually you need to just have those conversations that don't include the technology at all to a large degree. Now these are almost the focus group kind of thing. I almost hesitate to use the word. Yeah, so focus groups I'm not a big fan of because right. you get very strong personalities and they will tend to take over the attitude of sure. the room. Um, Been there. Yeah. Oh, wait. Been that guy. No, <laughs> that's you. <laughs> Done both. Yeah, <laughs> um, so you, you, it feels like you're talking to eight people, but really you're getting the opinions of one or two. You're getting the strongest opinion, overwhelming everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also get all sorts of social biases there where people want to seem, even with that strongest opinion, people kind of want to seem like their opinion is acceptable and they want right. other people to so agree. You always get a contrary and it's going to fight everybody. So yeah. The yeah. 12 angry men of focus groups. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm not a big fan you don't of like, focus groups. You prefer one on one. I prefer one on one. You can absolutely, um, you can design workshops with groups of people to get certain outputs. But in general, if you're trying to understand like core user needs from a very base level, then you just need to sit down and talk to a bunch of um, participants who but are going to be your target. By using technology like you know hotspots and mouse tracking and that kind of thing to, to on a website anyway to find out uh, how how long it takes people to recognize what they need to click on and click on it, et cetera. Sure. Well, I would say that is something that we do. Um, not so much eye tracking. Um, eye tracking is a very heavyweight mouse solution. Mouse tracking, anyway. Mouse tracking, certainly. Um, I mean, most of the software that I use is not very expensive, but it will record things like mouse movements. It will mm. record things like hotspots where someone has clicked. Mm. So if they've clicked on something that isn't clickable, you'll see that they've tried to do that. Um, so, you know, all of those things are useful. Eye tracking is a bit of a heavyweight solution for most of the problems that you come across yeah i agree i've yeah. tried it myself and have it's, you it's not it does, it's not reliable i've the seen some I've amazing seen. reports come out like some amazing 80 page documents come yeah. out when it works say, it works great uh, in certain i'm talking about the the toby toby yeah the, i have one of those and uh it TOB, works something like that yeah, yeah it works in some rooms and in others with different light or whatever it you, just doesn't yeah because it's, it's an infrared reflector right yeah. like it's shining an infrared light on your eye on your irises and then yeah. watching how they yeah. angle yeah so as soon as you have something that interferes with ultraviolet like like halogens halogens doesn't work you're hooped right yeah. it's the same problem the connect has yep that's right so for, for the same reason maybe if we all just wore hololens actually the the connect 2 <laughs> works really well with halogens interesting so they've yeah. clearly solved it all right anyway yeah we yeah. like the technology. Yeah. No, the technology is the technology is cool, and it's one of the reasons that you get a lot of people coming to you going, "Oh my god, can we do an eye tracking study?" Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of data that you get out of it, unless you are really making tiny, tiny tweaks to something, yeah, you've got to be pretty far down the path that you care about where people's eyes go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Other than dealing with the fundamental, I mean, the data is all over the place. The fundamental difference between men and women looking at things, you're going to see all like how much of that data is just this is how humans act. Well, exactly. As opposed to this is because of your sight yes and usually people will you know i mean you can record someone's body movements as well if you really want to you'll see them point at stuff you'll see them move their mouse Mm. in a certain area they do you know (laughs) you can see people struggling and you can see where they're looking and where they're not looking Mm. in general just by watching them just Um, watch their face yeah yeah exactly so you know unless you have a really crammed full page of 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 stuff that's very important for some reason and (laughs) it's already a mistake well exactly (laughs) yeah then it, it kind of it's, it's a bit of an expensive heavyweight solution. But. I've always thought that the Connect would be a cool device for watching the user's mood. That posture of shoulders and heads. Like, I think yeah. you could detect frustration that way. It's a really interesting idea. You know, I, know. I think you can maybe just look at a camera, you know, and see the, see the frustration. See the people, it's a lot easier yeah, just to notice people's it. faces articulate. But to be able to yeah. resolve... This is something Tim Huckabee's doing mm-hmm. with some of his uh, Actus stuff, where he's actually... Not only is he able to, and he's using Connect technology with this, but all custom software, detecting gender, age, uh, ethnic background, and mood. Wow. And profiling. And yeah, and just try to say that this was the state of the person as they went by this big screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a bit frightening. It's though. creepy. Yeah. It's like, creepy. We, we last uh, talked about it. We got this point where yep. he goes, dude, this is creepy. And he goes, yeah. oh, no, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. It's creepy it is awesome. A bit creepy. Yeah, it's a little minority report. A little bit. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's part of the reason that I left the Google Analytics audience 
stuff out of my talk in the end because that's all cookie tracking from various different websites. Right, you right. know, we're going to follow you around with this cookie and then we're going to make some assumptions about who we think you are. So, right. you know, and those assumptions are going to be very binary as well. So you're male or female, you can't be anything else other than that. We're just right. going to put you in those two parts. Um, and we're going to assume that you like cooking because you've looked at a couple of cooking sites, but actually we don't really have any certainty on that. And there no. might be more than one person using your computer. But so it's kind of, it, hmm. it, it's, it's a good starting place but it's also quite creepy and you also have to have the ad tracking cookie installed on your own site in order to be able to get data about your own users right. you have to go down that path exactly um so i kind of i kind of went morally ambiguous you Maybe get I'll pushed back on that then yeah i i think uh, i think that the people who would potentially push back on it are not the people who necessarily understand why it's problematic yeah. right um i think there are plenty of developers that would probably if i had talked about it would would possibly have taken me to task and you know rightfully because i think it is a which is also a distraction from the you know you hear you're just trying to talk about user research and you agitate them so much reminding yeah. them of how the internet actually works <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's detrimental to the overall goal of actually yeah. getting people to think more concretely about understanding what their user is this is a conversation we had this morning yeah uh well we weren't recording just this idea that as developers, we're further and further removed from who our users are. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, for a long time, we were building software on PCs for people using PCs. Mm. Yeah. Worst we just, case scenario, I could just copy it for you. Yeah. We just don't do that anymore. Most people are using phones, and you can't write software on phones. Yeah. So right away, this is immediate disconnect. And, and you, you better do some research. Absolutely. Like you better have a little mm. more understanding. I mean, do you see some kind of common denominators in that space about... Are the bulk of people now using phones? Am I making a gross assumption? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's one of the points that I made earlier on, actually, in terms of the fact that when you get pushback to do research, you know, mm -hmm. if you're working in a team where you kind of go, well, actually, we need to understand more, and someone goes, and this was the no excuses part, you know, and someone goes, oh, we don't have the time and the money, and we already understand enough about our users and blah, blah, blah that actually all you have to do is look at the transition from desktop to mobile sure, right. to understand that you can't know about your users for any length of time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that that a, their needs will change over time. It's constantly moving. Just have, we have an app for iPhone, Android, WinPhone for well, listening to the podcast and it's perpetually broken yeah. because somebody's shipping a new OS all of the time. Yes. Yeah. And you've got to have the app updated. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really fun just to go grab the data for the past month of, you know, what devices were using your app this past month mm -hmm. ago. Did you think this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, yeah, certainly the scale of um, mobile traffic on most sites now is, is absolutely getting, like... I entirely expected in many ways, but still, you look at the data and you go, 45% of our users are on a mobile phone. That yeah. is the most, like, that mm. is just insane. I mm -hmm. would not have thought that this would be happening five years ago. Absolutely. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for me to remove my screen full of hamburgers app from the App Store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Find the hamburger. Find the hamburger. Find the hamburger. There's only one. All the rest are bitmaps. Nice. That's Actually, mean. Isn't that That's mean? so mean. Wouldn't that be great, though? That's so mean. It's like Where's Waldo? <laughs> putting up <laughs> items that look like clickable things yeah. that just aren't clickable. Yeah. That's nice. It never get through. 
It's actually time to give away DevExpress D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Rasmus Christensen. Hi, congratulations, Rasmus. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, Rasmus uh, just won that D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our sponsor, Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button. There's no hamburger menu on the Get Free Stuff <laughs> button, by the way. Answer a few questions and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you've got to sign up to win. And Lily, we're going to surprise you here. You don't know this, but... Uh, we always ask our guests right about now, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, that's a very good question. I think I would buy myself, it's maybe, it, maybe it's boring, but I'd, I've been craving for it for a while. I would buy myself a suite of testing devices so that I had all of the different Androids and iPhones and wow. uh, laptops. Didn't we do that as one of the kits we, we did? did. Yeah, it's called yeah. the. Fu- We've given away the five grand four times now. Yeah. yeah, and every time it's been some variation on a dev kit, essentially. Nice. Yeah. And one of them was a development one of, machine. Almost one of everything. And one of everything. Awesome. So we call it the future drawer of broken dreams. Well, because actually making an app that works nicely on all of those yes. devices, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and finding a piece of software that will run for user research on all of those devices oh, is almost man. impossible. Yeah. Um, However, there are cloud services that not that don't just do emulation, but they actually run on hardware and yeah. then take Xamarin pictures. Test cloud. Yeah, Xamarin Test Cloud does that, and then take pictures of it running on all these places and send them to you. Yeah, price accordingly. Yep. Yes. That they do have, I've seen pictures of their, their lab, and it's these little wire racks, yeah. shelves, with all these different devices side by side with little cameras over them, and they yeah. load your app on all of them, run it through, and video it all simultaneously. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's gadgety. That'd be a nice room <laughs> to add to the house, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey, honey. Watch this. <laughs> Why is our power bill so high? <laughs> Remember that sewing room I promised you? Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> but for five grand, when you think that there's, other than the big iPads and things that are all that are five six hundred dollars, like you should be able to get a lot of. That's a big draw of broken dreams. There, it is a big is. draw. Yeah, <laughs> and you know you probably mount them all on the wall so that perhaps the cameras were just permanently on and watching you, because that would be super creepy. <laughs> that's not creepy awesome. at all. <laughs> no. If you think about it, it would probably only be the current, you know the current uh, generation of phones that would be expensive because the rest exactly. of them you could probably buy on Craigslist. They diminish so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rest of them you could buy used, right? Yeah, People have these used phones yeah. they don't use anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I know from talking to some of the Xamarin guys that they are literally hunting down 
old phones now. Yeah. Uh, because this, there's, they're still popular phones, even if they're not being sold anymore. And so they mm. need to make their apps work on them. Yeah. Right? So they, and they need bunches of them because they you know run a lot of simultaneous tests. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they're probably corny. I, I suspect someday that will be like a seed archive of ancient phones. Right. That cl- that cloud That's kind of awesome. That's yeah, kind of awesome thought. Weird. Yeah, weird. It's a weird thing. So what do you think is the number one uh, mistake that people make when designing apps? I think the number one mistake is not talking to your users. I mean, I think yeah. it depends uh, on what kind of mistake you might make. As Something you see over and over again, perhaps? So... Uh, many people would say that it is in fact the hamburger menu really? um <laughs> it, it certainly it tests like it it tests wildly differently depending on who you're talking to i think uh-huh. um so i did the hamburger menu was part of the recent gorilla usability stuff i did mm-hmm. and i think there was only out of a sample of 20 there's only one person who didn't get it but mm. i was testing in the center of london near you know places like old street and mm. you know silicon roundabout thinking you're gonna find a phone savvy crowd there they've so all you will they've find it yeah absolutely yeah and arguably that was who our audience was so that was okay but you do find that um people will struggle if they are less tech savvy and there is you know there is that um uh, learning curve to 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 kind of experience and once you've experienced that learning curve you will know but it just depends on it depends on the nature of your business right Sure. well i remember learning to use a mouse yes and learning to teach Older people yeah. to use them because it's totally counterintuitive when yes. you think about it. Yeah. When you put this hand on this thing, mm. don't look at it. Right. Look yeah. at the screen now. Move your hand. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you know yeah. that's weird. Yeah. So the fact that you know we people are learning. You know, Mikkel's comment, I think, was pretty valid. That mm. this is a new device that people are learning to count on. So it is, but I think the problem. The problem comes when you apply the same logic to Google that you do to a small company that is a shopping experience, for sure, example. Yeah. Because if I land on your site for the first time and I haven't gone through that learning curve and I can't find the menu and there's no critical need for me to engage with your particular site, I'm just looking for something, You're gone. I'm going to leave. Yep. You know, and you, then I've lost business. Could you animate the hamburger menu until they click on it? Just make with it the, annoying? Put some like, leaves and yeah, lettuce. Yeah, no, well, you know, some maybe growing and, you know, contracting and glowing or something. You know, Office did. <laughs> yeah, I know. There was an, there was, and Miller did a rant on it. Yeah, he's a huge <laughs> rant on it. He's, a, he's one of <laughs> our favorite reasonable. UI people in the yeah. world. He's hilarious. And if, you, if you're going to go listen to some shows, Lily, grab Mark Miller's show. Yeah. But it, yeah, it was that big glowy ball and it wasn't glowy originally, but it was this. It was this thing at the top of the screen that everybody ignored. That was actually access to a lot of fundamental yeah. features of Office. Yeah, right? like this print, is where save as file. And print and, yeah. Nobody knew what it was, and and their solution was not to fix it per se. It was <laughs> to make it go. No, no, touch me, yeah. touch me. Yeah. Or you could automatically expand the menu the first time. Well, so the so the frustrating thing about this debate going round and round is mm. there's a really really simple solution to this. What you do is you use the hamburger menu and then you write menu next to it. Mm. Okay. That's just crazy talk. It's right just, there. it's mad, right? But that's all you need to do <laughs> to fix the problem. Now, and if, if I you click on the word, it could like yep, all yep, clickable. Yeah, it's all clickable. <laughs> you you can, don't even have to write it that big. You can even argue that you could take out the word menu once they've clicked on it because now they know it's a menu. You <laughs> could do, I mean, if you, so if you're doing, you know, uh, a fully formed 
um, phone app, then certainly if you were going to onboard someone, you could put that as part of the onboarding process. Mm, sure. um, but I think the, the problem is more with responsive websites and smaller companies where mm. actually they're just kind of going, I've got a responsive framework and it's got a hamburger menu in it. And I'm just going to kind of bung it in the corner and hope that it works. Mm. Because for those people, you know, people will persist with the Google app because they need to use Google because right. Google owns your life. But they're not going <laughs> to persi- persist with, um, you know. But once they've gone over the hump once on this, you're fine. Like maybe they built the question here it's no question that google can use hamburger because they'll keep you but others have to decide when are we far enough over that threshold yes. with our customer base yes. that that's an exceptional absolutely exceptional item. and okay. that depends very much on who your customer base is yeah. and you know what their experience so it's just is. not a clear answer so much as you you've got to think you've got to think See, this yeah. is unacceptable you've got to think or you've <laughs> just got to bung the word menu on it i mean you know <laughs> <laughs> how elegant a solution <laughs> well, yeah. you know people people can read and um you know it's one way of solving the problem Dude, if you yeah. really want a hamburger menu another thing that mark miller talks about a lot is contrast and using contrast to convey importance of yes. information yes. do you see that mistake a lot Yes, so certainly um, contrast and, and visual hierarchy of information mm. is uh, is a thing that I used to hammer on a lot about when I was actually regularly doing visual design. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a problem that, uh, that you do see on quite a lot of sites where actually, particularly with these tile-based sites that we're yes. seeing a lot of because they're easy to make responsive, you put in a bunch of stuff that all have the same visual hierarchy mm-hmm. and probably quite a lot of it into a small space. And now it's and just then, confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then like where 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 the hell am I supposed to look? Right. Um, so there was that was something that came out of a recent test that I did where the the homepage in particular was just crammed full of stuff. Now how do you go? How do you show that a user is having a problem with visual contrast? Like what's the data you're collecting and then identifying into an actual item? Like yeah. you need to work on the contrast here. How many swears per second? How many swears per second? Yeah. <laughs> if only if only it were that easy. Um, it's it tends to be a combination of things. So if you're giving someone a task mm-hmm. and they miss a particular item or a set, a set of participants right. miss mm-hmm. the same item over and over, then you can make a conclusion about that. Well, right. the conclusion is that they've missed it, right? But right. then you now, can make an assumption. Yeah. And then the key is to change that thing based on your hypothesis and right. then go and test it again and see whether or not it's better. Right. And, and we are, this is straight up scientific method. You've got yep. to make a guess for why these people are Absolutely. having a problem, then validate that hypothesis by changing something in there and test again and see if you get a different result. Absolutely, yeah. With a different group of people too. With a different group of people, yeah. Otherwise they already know. Um, But yeah, so it's all about kind of going, we can identify that we definitely have this problem. We can guess that we might be able to fix it by doing this. And if you're talking about something like color contrast and they haven't met you know, basic standards, then you've probably got a pretty good inning. Yeah, this is almost low hanging fruit at that point. Exactly. Is color blindness a problem? So it's actually really difficult to get decent testing um, with uh, disabled users. Mm. And uh, one of the problems actually goes back to the thing we were speaking about earlier about having specialist testers. Sure. In that most agencies you go to or recruiters that you go to who deal with um, disabled testing will actually have just a very small group of specialist users, which they bring back again and again. Highly sensitized. Exactly. Um, and while it is 100% better than not doing anything at all, you do get reports back that will be like, you haven't met the WCAG mm. standard here. You know, I, I looked in the source code and I've seen and from, from individual testers. Um, <laughs> a, dude, you were a tester. What I wanted to know is, did you like it? Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, did you get to the end of the task? How easy was it to get to? Um, yeah. So you do get some quite specialist uh, responses 
responses back and you also get people responding on behalf of other people with different disabilities right. because yeah. they have specialist knowledge of what kind of things you need to do so you'll get a lot of really useful insight but you won't get the same kind of in the in the way we like to keep our participants kind of virgin and fresh and new and not right. have any knowledge of the product and not be yeah. specialists in a particular yeah, so area figuring out discoverability for colorblind people will be really hard yes because every colorblind group you've found is pretty sensitized to testing yeah, so it's more the general um so i wouldn't say i've specifically gone out and found colorblind groups and i think probably of all the disabilities colorblindness is probably slightly colorblindness dyslexia the things that are slightly more prevalent are are easier to get to because they more people suffer from them right um but uh by the time you start to get to physical impairments visual impairment visual impairment physical yeah. impairment you know the 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 more um the uh, disabilities that will affect you to the degree that you need to be considering them quite seriously um, but actually not many people suffer from them to be able to get a representative group of users within your target audience base who aren't specialist users it starts to become very difficult somebody once told me that the most two common colors confused by colorblind people are red and green Mm -hmm. and so that makes testing a a big problem for anybody who's colorblind (laughs) because you got to know the difference in driving you know yeah, yeah. They care about problem. position of lights. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is interesting, but and, it, and it, I have run across products that have a colorblind mode where they get rid of the reds and the greens for identifying. They use mm. different colors that are more clearly contrastable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a. I don't feel like we've done enough shows on some of the alternative interfaces and so forth because mm. it's hard to find experts. Yeah. It is. It is hard to find experts, and there are there are a few people out there who know who know their stuff really well. But it is it's extremely difficult to find people who are confident, particularly particularly in the areas of accessibility. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people just don't feel developers and designers don't feel confident that they know enough about it. Probably because they don't, and probably because by the time you start getting into ARIA roles, you're getting into quite kind of you know specialist areas or seemingly specialist areas sure. that wouldn't take that much time to learn but just don't tend to be high on the priorities list for people which is unfortunate but certainly I mean I'm dyslexic and I was ill as a kid so it's one of those things that is that I'm quite aware of right um, but I'm often quite a good gauge it's one of the ways that I convince people to um, either think about accessibility more or or do um, usability testing with um, disabled groups um, is you know I'll I'll kind of go well you know we should be considering these things and they'll go I don't think we've got many users in our base you know who are are like that and I'll go well excuse me (laughs) 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 if I could just point out the fact that uh, I am in fact dyslexic um, and I can't in fact read a page Um, so maybe (laughs) we should in fact change this it usually has this amazing shaming capacity yeah. to make people change their mind are there are there that's an I- very interesting thing because i'm wondering if there are certain ways to phrase things or words to avoid that uh, will you know ways to reword things that will be easier for dyslexic people to read so it depends a bit. <laughs> dyslexia is a bit of a, a bit of a bucket term now. I mean, when I say I'm dyslexic, I what I mean is I'm a bit dyslexic, I'm a bit dyspraxic, and I have dyscalculia quite badly. Mm-hmm. So okay. I'm not good with numbers. I know what one of those terms means. Cool. <laughs> like so uh, dyscalculia is basically dyslexia for numbers. Um, oh. Dyslexia is dyslexia for words, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, dyspraxia tends to be more about spatial awareness and also your physical movement. Um, so hmm. you might be more clumsy if you are dyspraxic could be per, per, mm. could be described as clumsiness 
it, or just Saturday night. You may be clumsy as a side effect of having dyspraxia, but it's yeah. also one of the things that I struggle with with my dyspraxia is to like tessellate things in my head to be able. So IKEA furniture is a nightmare for me because oh. I can't <laughs> wow. I can't rationalize. I have to literally put things in every position to be right. able to wow. work out where they go. Um, I but have that same problem. I, I don't suffer from this. <laughs> well, maybe I you think do. Maybe it's the problem there. Yeah, IKEA may be the problem there. That is true. Um, so yeah, I think it it depends. There's kind of a really wide gamut of um, uh, symptoms that someone might have when they say that they're dyslexic or they have one of the related sure. conditions. Yeah. Uh, for me, I struggle to read things unless I have a very short line length and very um, kind of big spacing between lines oh. and quite large text. Okay. So reading on my phone, um, actually with the text up size quite large with about five words on a line. Right. When I discovered that I could do that, it was like a revelation to me mm, nice. I had stopped reading for quite a few years because it was difficult to find books that had text size big enough for me to yeah, be but able e to e all these ebooks and phones and things because they can do all that scaling just built in nobody absolutely. has to think about it absolutely and the most maddening thing must be when you go to a site to read something and you can't scale it you can't scale it or yeah. it's not responsive and you scale it and then you have to kind of spend your time scrolling, scrolling left and right yeah, to, uh, yeah. or find another site quite frankly yes <laughs> well so Evernote had a product for this a little while ago actually where you it would just lift the start it would lift the text off the page and put it in your own style sheet right oh, I love so that. you could take the body copy i can't remember what it was called but you could take the body copy basically and put it in your own style sheet love it so i had that for a while um to read articles um so that i could kind of click a button and go and now this is the kindle presentation that i want that's great right. way for you to read most efficiently yeah, yeah. absolutely it's yeah it's a fascinating thing to think about as part of the whole user testing story to just sort of say how am I, you, you're probably going to get to 80% fine, right? But there's all these smaller variations. And I, I'm excited that responsive web design, for instance, for instance would pick that up. Absolutely. That it's just, it is a natural byproduct of the way responsive web design now works. Yep. That we don't have to do a big piece of innovation inside of our application to pick up those smaller, the, the, that last 20%. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any um, little gems you could share that we haven't, talked about maybe something that you talked about in your talk Ooh, um, so I also talked about using search logs internal search logs as usability feedback particularly oh. on language and the way that users categorize things um, so by having a look at your internal for the logs for your internal search you can identify things like if you've got missing content so if you've got a lot of you know no results returned um, on your search mm -hmm. then you've probably got content that your users want that you just don't have on the site mm -hmm. um, you can also identify when people are using different words to the words that you're using and might be missing your content as a result of that right. so for example you know you're saying zucchini but actually everyone's searching for courgette right um, of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. Um, and you can Aubergine. also <laughs> <laughs> you can also pick up some usability issues. So if you know that your popular content is being searched for a lot, yeah. then you have to ask yourself why your popular content isn't in a more prominent place that people can easily right. get to. Right. Sure. So it's not always necessarily a problem, but it might indicate that you've got some usability issues. I think I think most people just never look at the search terms. Well, like, exactly. I think it would be a real revelation just to 
take a first look and say, yeah. what are people looking for and how uh, that aren't, they aren't getting hits on? Mm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They, they have some amazing insights and they are just data that we have lying around. Yeah. And this was part of my kind of no excuses pitch mm. that we have this data, we have this information. It doesn't take much to actually sit down and analyze it. Mm. You just have to have a look at how people are using your site, mm-hmm. what kind of search terms they're putting in, compare it to the site map, see what pages actually exist. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not more than a couple of hours' work, and you get to find out whether or not you're actually meeting your user needs in a very yeah, particular just way. Yeah, top ten searches and cert- run them yourself. See what comes back and think, yeah. is this what people would want to find? Mm. Absolutely. I'm surprised how many people. You know, our new .NET Rock site, mm-hmm. because of Joel Hulin, let's make mm-hmm. no bones, yeah, yeah. has an awesome search. Yes, it where does. I, I plug in words and then I'm amazed they work as well as they do. <laughs> But uh, but it is a it, there wasn't always that way. Search yeah. is kind of hard. Search is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And and this idea that you would find people searching routinely for a particular term. Yeah. That just doesn't return useful results, and then maybe you could just take a bit of action on yeah, that. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, this could lead to a conversation about Google weirdos, but we won't talk about that. Oh, we should. We should that's tell a, that's Lily. a flash from we the past. Tell Lily then. about Google weirdos. So uh, before Richard, well, so we've done twelve hundred and some odd shows here, right? Wow. Uh, Richard came on as a host at show 100. And I'm the new guy. In between shows 50 and 99, um, the co-host then was Rory Blythe. And he had this uh, absurdist, surrealist comedy blog, which was essentially just his life, right? Because <laughs> his life is an absurd, absurd surrealism. surrealism. Yeah, it, yeah. So, and he, was, he, would have, he would write about stuff and then pull in references from Monty Python and just weird associations and just you'd be laughing your butt off sounds awesome yeah so (laughs) he thought it would be funny to look in the search logs to find out what people put into google that matched something weird on his site that brought them to his site Nice, right and so you you know and he would read uh, we had a segment called uh google weirdos and he would read off these search terms, and I never forget some of them. Cooking with pig milk is one. <laughs> Realize that got to his site, and they clicked on it. Oh and they my clicked God. on it, right? Because in the logs, you know, the search term is in the referring URL when it comes from Google. So, and then people would use it as a communication device, like they would type into Google. Uh, we were interviewing his friend Don XML, who is Don Demsack, and he was at the studio. But one of the Google weirdos that day, and Rory was there, was Don, uh, or Rory, tell Don to come home and take out the God-blessed garbage. <laughs> <laughs> That's ingenious. Isn't it great? It is ingenious. So, of course, that you typed that into Google, it got to his website, he clicked on it, and then he found it in the logs. That's hilarious. <sighs> Does Read your search logs. <laughs> Read your search logs. There yeah. are amazing things to be found there. Yeah. You might have a good laugh, too. <laughs> you actually. might or, Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting when you do user testing. Sometimes you find out things you may or may not want to actually know about people, yeah. too. You know, trying to focus on what's actually meaningful to your app versus understanding more about someone's life. Hmm. Well, yeah, so you can easily get off the beaten path. I should just say, though, we don't call it user testing. We have to call it usability testing because we are not testing the users. We're yeah. testing the usability. We are testing the, the usability, not the users. Okay, and like this that. is this is one of my mantras that yeah. I have to That's keep fair. on. Yeah. Because people get very uncomfortable when they think they're tested. They do. Um, and they they're change always, results. Yeah, they're, they're, gonna, they're always going to feel like that to a certain degree because you're sitting and watching them do a thing yes, you know, right. in a weird, uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it and, makes and it much worse. And usually doing something that they're not good at. 
Indeed. Too. Yeah, so you're indeed. Gonna put me in a weird place with something I don't understand. Ask me yeah. to do something I don't know how to do. And, and then watch me. And then watch me. Yeah. And ask questions about it. And do it in a kind of weird, awkward silence because right. you know you need to be a little bit weirdly awkward to encourage people to talk. Um, so it'd be great you know, if you sat there with a clipboard and when they clicked on something, you just go, just go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you mean? Poor participants. I, I flatly admit to have walked around a mall standing in front of stores and pretending to rob on a clipboard and walk away. <laughs> That's, That's hilarious. Because the reaction you get from the people in the stores is worth a fortune. I might have to try that this it weekend. Is, those awesome. things entertain me. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and intense. I haven't written anything. Was that during your explosives uh, stage? No, no, no. I was too busy blowing things up then. <laughs> explosives. <laughs> That's a long the only story. Re- yeah, the only reason I'm not in jail as a terrorist is that <laughs> I got over it before 9 11. Oh my it. God. Yeah. Awesome. The world, yeah. yeah. I, I was changed before the world changed. Yes. I was a kid. Good timing. Uh, yeah. I like to blow I, There up. was a time when I got Christmas cards from the bomb squad. <laughs> and I do know how to sweat nitroglycerin properly. Awesome. <laughs> I just can't put it on the internet. Hey, did you hear that, NSA? <laughs> Come and get him. Oh, guess what? He's Canadian. <laughs> Why they let me across the board? I do not know. <laughs> All right. Oh, well. Well, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Um, so the next thing that I'm going to be doing will hopefully be a contract in Edinburgh. Um, oh, although I haven't signed the contract yet, so I can't say exactly what that is. We'll um, be there Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, well, say hi to Edinburgh for me. <laughs> and well. Hopefully I'll see it soon. Yeah. We won't have any scotch left when we're done. But no. Yes. We're going to drain the country of its resources. Yes, that seems reasonable. <laughs> That's that what we're reasonable. there for. <laughs> if, if, if you could just give it enough time so that by the time I get there, they will have refilled. A that, little that bit? Would be, yeah, Maybe. At least a, at we'll least, leave least you a wee dram. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> Thank you. I'll go into Monty Python, ladies. <laughs> you can't get me out. Mm-mm. That's that's fair. All right. Um, well, Lily, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you guys. I've had a lot of fun. Oh, good. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 